You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. I am thrilled you're working through the book of Esther. This is a great, wonderful book of the Bible. It's one of my favorites, one of the two books in the Bible named after a woman, Ruth and Esther. And I was wondering if there are any Esthers in the house, anybody named after Esther? What's going on here? Pastor. Okay, well, if you have a baby, a girl, uh, you know, it's a, consider that it's a great name. It's a great name. And uh, if you have a boy, you can name him Mordecai. That's also a great name. So uh, equal opportunity here. Well, the, the chapter I've been assigned is uh, probably the darkest chapter in the book of Esther. And to be honest, uh, I chose it. And your pastor asked me what chapter I'd prefer to preach on. I said, give me the dark one. Um, and I think he was a little mystified that I said that. But I said that because we're going through uh, a kind of Esther 3 moment in history right now. I mean, the past six months, we've seen an eruption of anti-Semitism around the world like I've never seen in my lifetime. Uh, on the university scene, I mean, it's been extraordinary. Uh, when you had students calling for genocide and then you had the three presidents on December 5th uh, testifying before Congress and, and they, they said they're not willing to denounce these calls for genocide. But all the while, they are really quick to denounce any kind of microaggression that might appear on their campus that goes against the, the politically correct agendas. And if you use the wrong pronouns, you'll be in trouble. But they, they were silent on this one. And of course, then it wasn't just college campuses where we saw this, but we saw in cities, crowds gathering and, and, and just this stunning scene. One crowd, major city, you know, the crowd's chanting, gas the Jews, gas the Jews. And um, Jewish people have seen physical assaults, mobs raiding hotels, attacks on synagogues, uh, bomb threats across our nation. It's been just unusual. So we come to Esther 3. And I hope you have a Bible. And I hope you open it to Esther chapter 3. Let me just give you the, the setup. If you were here last week, the week before, you got a little bit of it. If you weren't, I'll help you out. The series is called Choose a Kingdom. And this chapter is a reminder... Not only that God has a kingdom, but there's another kingdom, a rival force at war with God's work and God's people from the time of Cain all the way to the present. Uh, you'll never understand the Bible or the book of Esther unless you account for that other kingdom as well. And the setting is an ancient one. This is ancient Persia, which is uh, where modern day Iraq and Iran are. Uh, it was a cosmopolitan world empire. The king was King Azuerus, most likely uh, known as Xerxes I. Uh, many Jews were still in exile, although some had returned to Jerusalem after exile. Chapter 1 begins, and you got this 180-day party going on where the king is throwing this big uh, wine fest to win the favor of his nobles. And he most likely drinks himself into a tantrum. And then at the end of the, the celebration, wants to bring out his trophy wife, Vashti, and flaunt his queen, actually humiliate his queen. And she refuses. I can understand why. And it's deeply embarrassing for King Azuerus. And he's got to find a way to reassert his power. And then you come to chapter 2, and 
What he does is he gets rid of the queen and he and his nobles decide there should be a, a, a new choice for a queen, gather all the beautiful young virgin, virgins from the city of Susa, the capital, and that's where Mordecai and Esther happen to live. Mordecai is raising Esther like a daughter, but she's actually the daughter of uh, his uncle, but her parents are gone, so Mordecai is raising Esther. And as the king and his forces are rounding up the virgins, Esther is taken from her home to the king's house and forced into his harem. It's a, you know, you got to imagine this is a horrifying moment for all these gals because every family, every girl, their hopes and dreams are being dashed. You know, everything they plan for their life is, is falling apart as they're forced into the king's harem. And they know that one wrong move, it could destroy their life forever. And it probably just being in that harem will destroy their life forever uh, if they're not chosen. But Esther's chosen. And Esther is honored with a, a feast. And at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai, who is hanging out at the city gate, happens to hear of a plot, an attempted coup, being planned against the king, and he whispers it to Esther, and Esther relays the message to the king and actually saves the king. She does him a great favor. But the king is spooked. He's really spooked at this point, and that's where chapter 3 starts. Chapter 3 is dark. It's not just dark, it's dark, dark. Uh, it reminds us <clears throat> that, um, that there's sinister stuff going on behind, behind the scenes, uh, that has, has to do with this other kingdom, uh, where God's work is being opposed. His people are being you know, going to be attacked. His redemptive plan, the enemy would like to derail his redemptive plan. So I want us to, in our few minutes together, to explore this darkness so we get a better sense of what it means to choose a kingdom, which is our theme. And I want us to look at four critical moments in chapter 3 and uh, how they remind us about kingdoms. So the first critical moment uh, is we see darkness descending with Haman's rise. Read chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Azuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, what do we know about Haman's rise? Uh, it took place after these things. Well, after what things? Well, after Chapter 1, the insubordination of a queen. After chapter 2, the attempted coup. And now the king wants to banish all rebellion. He's going to take drastic action to make sure there's no one who will oppose him. <clears throat> what he used to do in, in the way he ruled, he would, when he made a key decision, and you, you can see this in chapter 1, he would gather all the wise men and ask them, what does the law say must be done? He was living by the laws. But now he's panicked, and he's going to respond to the chaos by setting up a strong man who's going to restore order and control everything, and the king sets Haman above everybody else. And you better show him homage and recognize him and bow to him, or you'll be in trouble. So what we see here is that there's been a political revolution uh, in the kingdom here, where now the, the law is not that important, but total control is that important. And that's what Haman's really doing. The king removes his signet ring and he places it on the hand of Haman. And that's giving all his authority to Haman to do what he has to do. And Azuerus is frightened at these attempts on his life. And he wants to terminate all this political backstabbing in the, 
in the court and crush dissent. And so it all now comes down to one man. The government, the machinery of the state is being put in the hands of one man. And that's never, ever good, by the way. That's always a really bad news. Because Haman, in his elevation, is being transformed into a, a usurping God. And, and by the way, you know, this, this is, happens in politics so many times where you see a government start and it's small, it gets bigger and bigger, and then after a while it demands absolute obedience. And the state becomes like a God. We call this, there's a word for it, we call it statism, where the state assumes to be the ultimate authority. This happens in history time and time again. And every time it happens, it's a really dangerous thing and a really bad thing for a lot of people. Don't ever forget that. But then we see a second critical moment. Darkness descends with Haman's rise, but darkness is revealed in Mordecai's courageous stance. Look at verses 2 and 3. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, they bowed down and they paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai. Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And then the king's servants who were at the gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's commandment? Okay, stop right there. Uh, Here's Mordecai making a courageous stance. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going along. I don't think it's right. He's actually outraged by what's going on. And he takes the the, the path of civil disobedience. You know what that means, right? Where uh, It's a term referring to where you say, I'm not going to obey the government. And usually people do that for sake of conscience, right? I'm, I'm against, uh, I'm a pacifist, so I'm, I, I, can't, I can't sign up for this war or battle or whatever. Civil de- disobedience comes in different ways. But this is what Mordecai is actually doing. He's resolving, I'm not going along and, and you've got to realize that there's extreme pressure at this point on any Jew living in Susa, especially Mordecai and Esther. I mean, the pressure to conform to the, the, the culture of Persia was great. And you can get a hint of this in Esther's name. Because Esther's name, her real name is what? Anybody know? Her Hebrew name? Hadassah. Yeah, that's her Hebrew name. Uh, Esther is a Persian name, and, and the Persian name Esther means star, and it's a reference to the cult of the stars, the worship of the stars. And so you, you can just in her name get a sense of the, the Jews there have to try to fit in with the culture, but it's the challenge of an exile. They want to stay faithful to their, their faith, to their God in the midst of this uh, pagan culture. And this is the tension that every Jew experienced through history and every Christian experiences today. And uh, so Mordecai is, is now racked by the appointment of Haman, the posture of Haman, the authority giving to Haman, and he refuses to bow. He refuses to bow repeatedly. Now, I asked myself a question as I read this many times. I just said, there's nothing in the Jewish law that forbids a Jew to bow to a ruler. Right? Esther, in a later chapter, is going to fall on the floor before the king, before she makes her request. So, what's going on here? What's the difference with Mordecai when it comes to Haman? And the key is that Jews don't refuse to bow before a king or their advisors, but they do refuse to bow before idols. And Haman had become an idolatrous symbol. And of course, Judaism and idolatry 
Christianity and idolatry are irreconcilable opposites. You think back to the story of, in Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're not going to worship the image of the king, and they're thrown into the furnace. They will not do that. Uh, they have drawn a line. They have make it, made a stand. And, of course, in the ancient Near East, there were, there were many, not just statues of idols, but there were many kings who became idols. There were all these kingdoms with all these different idols. And the will of God was the will of the ruler because the ruler was, was God. And here the Jews, wherever they went, they said, no, there's only one God. And they're living in a world sort of a moral relativism and all these different gods. They're here God, there God, everywhere God, God. And um, they, they say no. They say no because they, they rebel against the idolatry of statism and the, the, the polytheism that's behind it. And, and you have a clue to what's happening here in the fact that Haman is described as Haman the Agagite in verse 1. Um, who are the Agagites? Well, did you know they're descendants of Agag? And he was the king of the Amalekites. There's something deep going on here that's not explicitly stated in the text, but just as Mordecai is a, named as a descendant of Benjamin, a Benjaminite, and he's related to Saul, uh, so uh, Haman, the Agagite, is a descendant of Agag and the, Hal- the Amalekites. These were, the, these were the, the mortal enemies of the Jews. You read about them in the book of Exodus. So Haman's not just ticked at Mordecai. He's, ticked at, he's got deep stuff against the Jews. I mean, it goes back from the day they left Egypt and tried to get some help from the Amalekites, and the Amalekites showed them no mercy. And you can read in the book of Exodus 17, 16, and it says the Lord is going to wage war with Amalek from one generation to the next. So this is a long thing. Amalek stands for the anti-Jew who's caught up in a false idolatry. And uh, so Haman, when he's referred to in this chapter in verse 10 as the enemy of the Jews, all this is behind it. It's deep. He has power without limit. He would like to repeat the crime of the Amalekites and just get rid of the Jews. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but in all of antiquity, The Bible is the only document that consistently advances the idea we know as civil disobedience, that there's a time when God's people must say no to the state when the state claims to be God and the ultimate authority. It's really fascinating. The state demands worship. Totalitarian states do this. And one reason, by the way, totalitarian states like the Soviet Union when it was together, uh, communist China, uh, but there are many examples. One, one reason why they don't like Christians and Jews, and they're usually bunched together, is because both groups say, there is a God who is higher than you, Mr. Hitler, than you, Mr. Stalin, and we will obey him. And totalitarian governments absolutely hate that because they are loyal ultimately to another kingdom, right? Well, then we come to a third critical moment. So darkness is revealed in Mordecai's courageous stance. He says no. He draws a line in the sand, but darkness culminates in Haman's diabolical plot, and you see it unfold in verses 4 to 11. It says, when they spoke to him day after day, um, Mordecai would not listen to them. They told Haman, 
in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he, he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, and he, dis, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so he had made known to him the people of Mordecai, and he sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Azuerus. That's a pretty big piece of real estate. And in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Azuerus, they cast Pur, that is a lot, before Haman, day after day. They're trying to decide when to lash out against the Jews. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And then Haman said to King Azuerus, hey, O king, there's a certain people scattered abroad in your kingdom, dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. And by the way, their laws are different from those of every other people. And by the way, they don't keep the king's laws so that it's not in the king's profit to tolerate them. And if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasury. And so the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Wow. Haman wants to just annihilate them. The king is agreed. Now, let me just say it again. The book of Esther is a wonderful book. And it's not just about a courageous woman. It certainly is that. And it's worth reading for that alone. It's, it's also about God who is at work behind the scenes that you heard about last week. And it's also about another kingdom that's at work opposing the kingdom of God. So there's something deeply sinister going on behind the scenes. Uh, there's an adversary who's hidden, but he's active. And we see this all through Scripture, don't we? He wants to throw himself against the work of God's work in God's kingdom, against the work of Christ, against the church, but against the redemptive plan that he was working through the, the Jews. And Scripture is very clear. We have an enemy. And it's very clear about the reality of deep wickedness. And it's very clear about the long war that he is waging against God's people. And you'll never understand Scripture, let alone the book of Esther, unless you come to terms with that. And so, he plots against the Jews. And I want to just remind you, this is not just a one-time deal. But as you study history, this is, it's strange, but it's, it's troubling. This is a pattern that we see in history. And I sometimes say, you know, Haman uh, keeps returning, keeps showing up. He's alive and well. Um, this is a hatred that won't go away. This is the world's oldest hatred. You say, um, what's, what's unique about what Haman did? Well, what's unique about it and what's unique about this anti-Semitism is, is it seems that in every generation, as you study history, there are forces that want to try to eliminate the Jews. You know, I mean, think of Egypt. Go way back in the beginning of the Bible. And Pharaoh tries to destroy them twice. He tries to kill all the, the Hebrew boys and, and then take the women and, so that the race will be no more. And then he tries to destroy them at the Red Sea. Or think about the Assyrians under Sennacherib. He wants to do the same thing. He wants to wipe them out. Or think about the, then came the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar 
He wanted to do the same thing. Then came the Persians, which is where we're at in Esther 3 with, with Haman. Then came the Greeks and Antiochus. And then came the Romans, and they tried to do this. They destroyed Jerusalem. They wanted to wipe out the Jews. Then came the Ottomans, the whole Ottoman Empire. Then came the Nazis, the most ambitious attempt at genocide of the Jews in human history. You know, of course, I'm not, I didn't live during World War II, but I lived in the post-war generation, and people would say, you know, well, finally, the world has come to its senses in regard to this. And, and here we are 78 years later, and we're back in the same place. By the way, I, my Uncle Wally was in the 71st Infantry Division of the U.S. Army, and he liberated a, a Nazi concentration camp in Austria, the largest one in Austria. It was called Gunskirchen Lager. It had 18,000 Hungarian Jews. And, and uh, he t- would tell us stories about the day that they stumbled across this camp and what they saw. And it, 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 he was never the same. And of course, since Israel's founding, they've had attempt after attempt to just wipe them off the map. And of course, as Hamas, people, they, they often forget that the charter of Hamas specifically says they exist to obliterate the state of Israel where all, most of the world's Jews are today. And, you know, just imagine if the state of Wyoming, if its constitution says, our our constitution, we're committed to obliterating the people in the state of Colorado. <laughs> You'd think twice about going to Wyoming, right? And imagine being surrounded by, by states like that. This past April, I was invited on a trip to, uh, to Israel, and we got a tour of the northern border. And it was very sobering. This was in April. Uh, so we were up uh, right on the border of Israel and Lebanon, and IDF uh, had us walk along the fence. And as we looked over the fence, you could see the Hezbollah towers. And the Hezbollah towers, many of them were designed after the towers of the Nazi concentration camps in Germany to send a message to the Jews across the border. And the graffiti, as it was translated, says, you know, a thousand jihadis are coming for you in Jerusalem. So not not nice neighbors, really. Um, And... um, very, very, very sobering. And of course, in, in some ways, October 7th wasn't a surprise. But it was horrific, the slaughter that happened and the, the barbarity, the putting babies in ovens and beheading them and all, all that, the just almost unspeakable things. And many of us, maybe you have too, we've tried to say, well, why is this pattern so deep in Scripture and in history? Uh, what, what is behind it? We sometimes name it anti-Semitism, which is not a real accurate way to describe it because um, Jews are hated not for being Semitic. Lots of people in the Middle East, they're all Semitic, but um, they're, they're hated in a unique way. Um, what is it? Is it because there's not a two-state solution? No, this hatred was there long before that. Is it because they're in the land of Israel? No, this hatred was there long before that. Is it because the world is ignorant? No, there are a lot of bright, educated people that have fallen for this hatred. Is it because of the, there's envy for Israel's wealth? Well, look, it's only 0.2% of the world's population are Jews. Was Christianity the beginning of this anti-Semitism? No, it was there long before um, some Christians uh, lashed out at the Jews. Uh, it's deeper than all these things. Uh, Here's what the Bible says in the most explicit passage I can find about 
why is this deep hatred there? And you find it not in the book of Esther, but you find it in Psalm 83. So if you just flip over to Psalm 83, it's the ultimate why, I think, is that there's a hatred of God and anything associated with God. And Psalm 83 is fascinating. It begins, it's a prayer. God, don't stay silent. Don't hold your peace or be still. Your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads and they lay crafty plans against your people. And they consult together against your treasured ones. And this is what they say. Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. There's genocide. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. They conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. This is the anti-covenant. The tents of Edom, Moab, the Hagrites, Gabal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre. Ashur has joined them. This is a cry for prayer. People are trying to wipe us out. Why are they trying to wipe us out? Because they hate us. Why do they hate you? Because they hate God. And they, they're, they're, they're against what God is doing. Because His people are His treasured ones. It's a fascinating psalm. It's the only part of Scripture, I think, that gives the clearest answer uh, to why we see this persistent pattern in, in history. Um, and the prayer at the end of the psalm is, God, answer this prayer so that they may seek your name. And that they may know that you alone are the true Lord. So in Esther, you have God's kingdom, the king, and you have uh, Diabolos, the adversary at work behind the scenes, trying to derail his work. And uh, in the midst of all this is history, their history and our history. And when I was speaking to our students in chapel, I, I just said, hey, never, as Christ followers, never fall for the world's oldest hatred, this, this anti-Semitic hatred that we see in Esther 3 and we see played out on the streets. Stand with our Jewish friends, especially at this time. Uh, who knows, but the way God works, He works through Esther's and Mordecai and, and people like you. You know, that maybe you are made for such a time as this. And there are times that you can't be silent. You just can't be. And I told them the story of a pastor in Germany. The guy was a Lutheran pastor. His name was Martin Niemöller. He was a um, pastor in the 30s, the 1930s and 40s. And originally, Martin Niemöller uh, welcomed Hitler, as did many Germans, uh, as one who would bring order in the midst of chaos. And uh, as Hitler came to power in 1933, Martin Niemöller began to look through it and he said, you know, there's something terrible going on here. And he became an outstanding critic of Adolf Hitler, the, the uh, Fuhrer of Germany. And um, he was arrested because of that. And they put him in prison. He spent eight years in Nazi jails and concentration camps. But Martin Niemöller, the pastor, summed it all up at the end of the war by saying this. He was ashamed that he didn't speak out earlier. And he said, and his quote is, first they came for the socialists, and I didn't speak because I wasn't a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. 
pretty sobering, isn't it? Pretty telling. Well, um, our world has seen its bit of confusion, but back in Esther 3, the end of the chapter, it says their world, after this decree of Azuerus became known and the plans were laid, their world was thrown into confusion, which takes us to the final critical moment where darkness is now being acknowledged by all the people in Susa and uh, especially the Jews there. It erupts in panic. Verses 12 to 15. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. And it was written in the name of King Azuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. And the couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And evidently, then it went to the rest of the kingdom. And the king and Haman sat down for a drink, and the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. I mean, think, think of the, the terror that settled in to the exiles in Susa and beyond. And remember, his empire goes from India to Ethiopia, from India to Africa. This is a massive piece of land. So the word gets out and there's panic. The darkness is acknowledged as people panic and the Jews are thrown into confusion in all 127 provinces. By the way, my wife couldn't be with me today. She was a little bit under the weather, but her background is Greek. And her grandmother came from, uh, was a Greek living in Turkey. Her grandmother immigrated to the U.S. in 1923. She was raised in the city of Smyrna and Ephesus. But it was in Smyrna that she was living in 1923. And the Turks in, in that, uh, at that time, uh, they, they drove out the Armenians and the Greeks. And there was a genocide. There was the first genocide of the 20th, 20th, uh, 20th century. You can read about it in the history books. And her grandmother was 12 years old at the time, but she saw her whole family slaughtered. She saw the house of the city burned. The city, you can see pictures of Smyrna going up in smoke. She was the last, last got on to the last boat leaving, and finally uh, they went to Crete, and then she came to America as a 12-year-old girl, having lost her family because it was a genocide against her. This is, a, this is a terrible, horrible thing. It's just a little taste of of what was at work here, the dynamic, the, the, the dynamic that was at, at work. And that's why they were thrown into panic and confusion. Think of that if that were you. But of course, we can't panic. And we're not thrown into confusion. Why? Well, because we know the rest of this story. And you're going to hear about it from Pastor Jim in the coming weeks. We know that God is in control of the story. We know that this darkness is an essential part of the story. You know, there's no Esther 8 without Esther 3. Uh, there's no exodus without slavery in Egypt. There's no resurrection without 
Without the cross, there's no salvation message of good news and gospel without the, the hard news of, of uh, the, the seriousness of, of sin and rebellion against our Creator and divine justice and, and a day of judgment. But we know the rest of the story. And that's why we don't panic. We know that Esther is part of a much larger story that runs from Abraham to Christ, where God is carrying out His redemptive work. Uh, and we know that at many times along that whole trajectory, the enemy behind the scenes has tried to derail it. At this point, by cutting off David's line, the line of the Messiah, in the life of Jesus, by trying to kill the Messiah when he was born as a baby, when Herod slaughtered all the, the, the babies in Bethlehem, the male babies in Bethlehem, when Satan attacked him on the Mount of Temptation, when he was crucified, uh, that the enemy was at work trying to snuff him out. But of course, as C.S. Lewis wrote, there was a deeper magic at work, or as theologians would say, there was a providence at work where God sovereignly was working behind the scenes in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And it's that good news that keeps us from sinking into the darkness of any age, of any time, and of any circumstances. God's deliverance of his people in Esther prefigures his final deliverance in Jesus Christ. And while Hitler and others and Haman have had their final solution to get rid of the Jews, we know that God has an ultimate solution in sending his son, as we've sung about this morning, to save the world and providing a gospel. And so Esther 3 confronts us with this darkness and it bids us to choose. Choose a kingdom. Are you going to be part of Haman's kingdom and its agenda? Or, or where Mordecai and Esther are? Are you going to be part of the kingdom of God or the kingdom uh, of this world empire? Uh, are you going to be with the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the God of this world? Esther Three confronts us with this choice. Where will you stand? And of course, Esther 3 also calls us to be faithful with a courage. Not Esther here. Esther comes later, and it's great. But the courage of Mordecai, who dared to stand for what is right and true in his time, who dared to speak, who dared to show his colors. And of course, the book of Esther ends in the final chapter with God memorializing a holiday to never forget this episode. Why? Because um, there are two kingdoms and we need to choose the right one.